Welcome to Episode 7 of the Teaching While Learning Podcast. Now that you've made your way here, I hope you're ready to dive deeper into the ESL industry and get a glance of what it has to offer. The TWL Podcast is dedicated to placing you in the shoes of current and former ESL teachers by bringing you their stories, experiences, and opinions. I'm your host, Tim Hillebrand. On today's episode, I'm joined by a former ESL teacher who worked in South Korea for just shy of two years. While he was there, issues with how the schools were run and a lack of materials to facilitate his classes ultimately turned him off from teaching. Let's jump into my chat with Thomas Belmore. All right. Hi, Thomas. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, Tim. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problems. We're, I'm really looking forward to kind of hearing your thoughts on just some of the pitfalls people can be aware of um, if they decide to, to work in the ESL industry. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm happy to share some very honest and frank uh, opinions on based on a lot of the experiences I've had and also a lot of the things I've seen over the last 12 years. So uh, I definitely won't hold back. Not everything I share is going to be firsthand experience, but I can promise it's all very highly accurate. When we were speaking before, a lot of the things that you that we were talking about actually, you know, I've heard as well, and they're quite well known within the community of EL teachers. So. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm sure this is, I, I'm sure either this is going to be, you know, uh, common knowledge to pretty much all of your listeners. And if not, it might be things that people maybe weren't willing to look at in the first place or just kind of ignored or, or just sort of tucked away in the back of their mind and said, you know what, maybe I should give this more thought as a result of hearing this. I hope, I hope people will get something from it. Yeah, I'm sure they will. And I really hope they do. Um, I remember when I first started looking for ESL positions, I didn't make much of an effort to um, look into some of the stressors that I might have, and I really regret doing that. Yeah, for sure. It, it's it's a real tricky sort of – it is very uh, muddy waters to navigate. It's, it's, it's not – I don't, I don't think there's any absolute good or absolute bad sort of experiences that one can have. I think you can get, when you get into it, there's a whole spectrum, but there's never like complete, completely evil uh, or completely perfect sort of uh, teaching experience you're going to get. It's going to be all over the map. So can you just kind of give everybody um, a little heads up into what got you interested in teaching English and what you hope to get from the experience? Well, um, this is a lot of people are going to be like, wait a minute, why are you talking to this guy? I actually never wanted to teach English in the first place. What the reason why I got into it was uh, I had graduated. I did four years of media and communications in Windsor, Canada, uh, and I graduated from university and not I didn't I didn't have I was a very bad student. So I wasn't really ambitious in a lot of ways, but I knew I was good at writing and I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I got my start in freelancing and I was also working at a blockbuster video at the time. And my wife was doing teacher's college. She was going through the Ontario College of Teachers. And about six months after she finished, uh, job prospects were, this was in 2007 uh, in Ontario, job prospects were nowhere to be found. And she just happened upon on the internet, the advertisements for teaching abroad. And she said, look, teach English in Korea. And I'm like, like, I've never, I've never heard of that before. I didn't know that was a thing. And, and, and I think to my mind and in hindsight, when I look back on it, I feel like that's probably how a lot of people happen into it because you just kind of go, well, there's no, nothing materializing for me here at home. I've got student loans to pay. I can't afford to live on my own. So I'm still under my parents' roof. Like this sucks. And so we just sort of threw the, 
darted the board and obviously we, we hit Korea and we were like, okay, let's give this a shot. And she went out first. She went out first to get a, she secured a job at a, in Korea, they're called hagwans. We know them as bushibans here in Taiwan. And then uh, a few months later, I followed her, followed her out on an ESL contract of my own at a different, at a different hagwan chain. So. Yeah, no, that, that actually kind of rings true for a lot of people that I know and even myself. Especially the the student the student loan issue that you brought up is a big thing for me. I can totally understand that. Uh, was there a particular reason you settled on Korea? Did you ever look at other places as well? Uh, we didn't. She the ad that she had seen and the agent that she had met online had specified Korea. The agent was Korean. She was based in Toronto, uh, and it was the first thing she landed on. And we honestly we were kind of naive and a little st- and a little stupid. Uh, because we didn't really do our homework. We didn't look into it. We didn't take the time to educate ourselves or to do any research and what teaching abroad entailed or what other people's experiences were like. In 2007, this was at a time when we were we're still really young uh, and and just fresh out of college and not sure what to do with ourselves. So um, I think anything sounded good at the time. And I, if I had known then what I know now, I think we might have never left. Uh, I'm glad we did. I'm glad we're in the place that we're at now because we, 12 years later, <laughs> 12 years, it only took 12 years for us to get ourselves in a really nice spot. Uh, but um, yeah, there's just a lot of problems that came along with that whole thing. And you had to learn a lot and lose a lot and not make a whole lot of money to learn some big lessons. Before we get into the actual um, problems that we had talked about beforehand, could you go into a little bit about how expectations change from when you first got involved, kind of finding a job and securing a position to kind of leaving the the ESL industry. This is a very interesting thing because my, my story runs parallel to hers and I'm privy to what a real educator and a real teacher uh, expects and wants from her career versus myself who was just doing it just because. Uh, and I know that when she got to her Bushiban or ha, her Hagwan, it completely went against everything she had wanted to become a teacher for. Like it, it flew in the face of everything she learned at, at teacher's college. It was not an early childhood education experience. It was, um, it was a complete, it was an uh, ethical disaster because they were having her work uh, in human hours and, and putting way more on her than they should have because she had those qualifications and they didn't have anybody come in with those qualifications before they saw somebody who was a real qualified teacher and said, look at all the extra work we can give this person. They can handle it because she's qualified for it. Nobody else at the school had her qualifications. Uh, Whereas I went into it and I thought, this is just a job. This is like flipping hamburgers or working at Blockbuster. It's whatever. You pick up a book, you look at the book, you relay that to the kids and you hope they get something out of it. Try to have a bit of fun with it. Don't hit any of the kids and you'll be fine. <laughs> like Literally, that was my whole thing. Leaving it, I saw the whole thing as a money-making scam. Uh, for, for that particular, especially that particular chain, I left it thinking, this is a business. It's a business that's sole purpose is to extract as much money from the parents' pockets as possible with as little thought put into the content or the delivery of said content as possible with no thought put into organization, uh, the uh, communication between staff and uh, the higher-ups, um, no thought put into 
materials or where they should be or where you should be able to access them at any given time, the ease of use, the, the user-friendly sort of nature of, okay, if you have this curriculum and you want to work with this material, you can find them here with the other pertinent or relevant material. No, everything was everywhere, books tossed everywhere. It was, it was, a, it, to me, it was a, it was a, it was a convenience store op operation. It was really felt like somebody just said, I'm going to rent this space here. I'm going to throw some desks and some shelves in there and then throw some books in there and we'll teach some English. And, and I left it with a real cynical view of the whole thing. And my wife did too, because after her first six months of bushy, uh, bushy bond work, she broke contract and they said, you're breaking your promise. She's like, you broke your promise to me. Like you're having me work unpaid overtime and all this other stuff. And he departed for greener pastures almost immediately. Like she said, this is not what I went to school for. So both of our views ended up being very cynical of the whole thing. Well, let's let's dig into to some of these some of these issues that you kind of just briefly went over before. Let's start off with kind of with the business models of these hog ones um, in South Korea. Uh, before before we go into that, can you briefly explain what a hog one is for people that aren't um, sure what it is? Okay, so if you're if you're in Taiwan, you've never taught in Korea. Uh, hog one is a bushiman. It's a it's a cram school. Uh, and a hagwon could apply to any type of cram school. It's not just an ESL cram school. It could be a hagwon could be a math hagwon or a science hagwon or or whatever, a music hagwon. But uh, uh, English ESL hagwons are definitely the the, the more dominant. Uh, they're predominantly found uh, throughout Korea, and, and you'll still get other hagwons. But uh, the hagwon is usually synonymous with ESL hagwon, and. Um, they're they're usually English cram schools, and in Korea, uh, particularly in Korea, they are franchises. They're they're uh, hagwons that are opened, and using systems that are are bought as as a franchise. Um, so uh, I like I like in I like the uh, fast food model. If I if I have a lot of money, if I'm an investor, and if I have a lot of money, I'm I'm just a guy with a suit and a lot of money and a Rolex. And I, I don't know what to do with my invest. I want to invest somewhere. And I look at food chains and I'm like, but food, foods, people always going to need food. So what food chain do I want to invest in? I don't know anything about the restaurant business. I don't know anything about service industry, but I know if I invest in say a Taco Bell or a McDonald's or whatever, or a Tim Hortons back in Canada, I know the chances of it making money are going to be very good. I know I can always count on it to be a sustainable source of income. I can hire people to run it. I, I can buy into the franchise and it's all packaged and ready to go. Like even you can run your own coffee shop or your own restaurant. It's as easy as opening this owner's manual and reading through it and then watching all the training videos and then here are all your materials and here's everything you need to get started and away you go. Hogwans are the same principle, same idea. There is a business model that's in place for that. You have different systems. So I'll come up with some examples that are completely fabricated. I'll just make them up. Like uh, 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 Miss Wan's ESL Academy. And you look at it and it's a photo of Miss Wan, who's a very nice looking lady. And she's pointing to, she's holding a, a book of something and she's got her thumb up in the air. Like you're going to learn English if you pick up this book. And uh, the, the letters are all colored in different things. And it's got a very specific look and it's brand. It's a brand. And people look at that and go, oh, Miss Wan, she seems to know what she's doing. Like, oh, I could send my kid here and my kid will, will learn English from Miss Wan's learning system. And, and away you go. Or, 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 you know, Johnny Knoxville's school for ESL school for dummies. You know, like it could be anything. 
but it's a system. It's a package. It's got the marketing materials built into it. It's got all the books built into it and everything's ready to go. All you got to do is put down, you got to have your capital and you have, you have to nice chunk of change and then you got to staff it and then away you go. It seems like one's brand plays a pivotal role into the composition of the students. Is that safe to assume? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and the other thing is if, you're, if your brand doesn't have a lot of recognition or staying power, then it's up to the owner to sell people on it. And I think that's generally the mark of a good Hagwan or Bushiban owner is they're a great salesman. They don't have to be any, they don't have to know, they don't even have to know English because I've worked with owner, I've worked at schools where the owner didn't even speak English, but they have to be a good salesman. They have to know how to sell something. And these guys generally have a good sales pitch ready to go. So, so yeah, the brand is recognizable. And if it's, if it's not as recognizable as they'd like it to be, then they, they throw their sales pitch behind it. And they've got the parents in their, in their office for 30 minutes or 45 minutes pitching them that why their, their bushy bond is a bushy bond they should go with. So to add to what you just said, before recording this episode, we were exchanging some text messages and you were giving me your general thoughts on bushibans and also hogwans. And in one of your messages, you put the word school in quotes. Can you elaborate on why you did that? Well, so it goes back to uh, standards, regulation, curriculum, all that stuff. Um, I think any good school has to have uh, a proven curriculum in place. I think the, the foundation of any school is based on that. And uh, these Curriculums come from a number of professional sources, uh, people with PhDs, doctorates, uh, people who have been been teaching for 20 or 30 years. And it's government, uh, it's passed through governments and uh, regulation and all this other stuff. There's there are standards in place for schools. Uh, and, and we know this. This is common knowledge. Like this is not I'm not uh, spreading new gospel to anybody. Everybody knows the book. So uh, it, it's. It's where do you do you want to send your kid to a school that has good standards, good curriculum, good practice? Everything is in practice. Everything works. Uh, whereas a bushibon is not regulated. They're not. They don't have to pass any standards. They they have a system in place, and it could be based on TEFL or whatever whatever sort of ESL certification you want to go with. It could be based on any number of things, and they throw a lot of a lot of words around like Oxford and 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 whatever else like Princeton and all this other crap like these are our systems and they're proven for this or that but they're just buzzwords they actually use western education buzzwords to draw in the parents but there's no regulation there's nobody looking these things over and uh, curating the content that's being delivered to these kids there's no curation involved it's just um, you know and and the people creating this content are not native speakers themselves Uh, yes there are ESL, there are Westerners who are outsourced for certain bits of, of things, but the design of these things, uh, the, the design of these systems, and I would call it, I would prefer to call it a system rather than a curriculum. Because if you buy a, if you buy into the Bushy Bond system, uh, the, the package you're getting is it as a learning system. I, I would rather call it a learning system than a school. It's, it's like work, hooked on phonics worked for me. It's a system that you buy that could possibly help you to improve your English ability. A school is, is the complete opposite of that. It is a proven curriculum-based uh, you know, institution with standards that have been regulated by 
everybody that should be in a position to regulate something. So I hope you're following me, but that's the way I look at it. So a Bushy Bond's learning system is not curated by anybody of, of uh, any level of expertise. You don't know who's putting it together or where it's coming from, but you know they're not paying some specialist from abroad to put these things together because that would cost money. Uh, you know, it's, it's whoever. So I don't think it, look at it as a school cause it's not a school. It's an after, it's an after school cram system or it's an after school learning system for, for delivering ESL to whoever wants to learn it. So, uh, cram schools apt, I guess cram schools apt. I prefer to stick with Bushibon or Hagwon more because they don't, they don't employ any, like when you, if you've been around and you've worked for these places and someone says you want to work for a bushy bond, you know exactly what that means. Or if I say to somebody, do you want to work for a school? They'll go Hess or wherever. And, and it's like, no, 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 no. A school, like a real school, like an elementary school. So, so I, I hope I've helped to delineate that a bit more. Could you expand on some of the problems that you saw maybe in your classroom, obviously, but maybe just as a whole in the school from using approach with, with the student? So I find that a lot of the, the, one of my biggest problems with the material was they wanted you to fill up an hour, an hour and a half with the thinnest book imaginable. Um, do like today you're on page five and parts A and B. And it's like, it's like a five minute or 15 minute lesson at, at best. And the rest of the time you're, you're fumbling to try to figure out what to do. And if you're not, if you're not adept at creating lesson plans or organizing your time wisely, and I am terrible at both. Um, my wife would be is awesome at both. I am terrible at both. If you're not adept at those things, you're going to be you're going to be looking racing to to Google up worksheets and and random shit on the internet. That's probably not going to be of any use to the kids or in in the long long term sense of the the plan that you're using. It's 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 a really and they, and it's just like just these and they but and the thing is the 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 admin or the the people above you don't want you to go through the book too quickly because then they don't have a reason to bill the parents so it's it's just the thin Nate the how thin the material is how it's how it's so lacking in anything rich rich uh, with zero context to apply you can't apply it in any context you can't. It's not, you're not giving good examples to work with. Um, and, and maybe, maybe it is your job to come in and, and create a, a really nice lesson plan, but that's not something they tell you when they hire you. They give you the book and go teach parts A and B and they never go, we expect you to do X, Y, and Z. And there are teachers that I have seen who have uh, been to their, to the credit of the ESL teaching community. Some of you out there are awesome at this. Some of you know, like you, you come in and at first you're working with it and you go, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then you adapt. And the next thing you know, you're making your own lesson plans and you're, you're figuring out ways to um, stretch that content out and, uh, and fit it into an hour time slot and to make it fun and interesting and engaging. There are a few of people out there that are really good at doing that. And I, my hat's off to them for doing that. But for most everyone else, especially Joe Blow, just can't wait to get his drink on at the end of the night. That is not what they signed up for, and that is not what they want to be doing with their time. And I don't blame them for that, but I wish they would take more ownership of that and more responsibility of that because the, they, the admin is not going to acknowledge these problems. 
ever. The owners are not going to acknowledge these problems ever. The coworkers the, and the local teachers are not going to acknowledge these problems. So the curriculum is going to stand as this very thin, uh, stringy sort of uh, threadbare sort of, of thing that you have to try to, to work with. And the best you're going to be able to do maybe at most is play some hangman and bingo for 45 minutes. And that is where it really gets really awful and sort of depressing. That's where it really became depressing to me is just feeling like, what are we even doing here? Why? And not being able to find anything else in the curriculum to help supplement that really basic plan that they want you to follow. Supplemental materials, go find them yourself. Like you didn't think to create supplemental materials. Um, any kind of games that work within the context of what you're trying to do, nothing on hand to do that with. Um, reading material, no. If it's not in the book, if it's not a passage in the book that you're teaching from, forget about books that the kids can read together or something like that, read alouds and whatnot. So my biggest criticism of any of these systems is they're generally lacking in appropriate content for a given lesson or an appropriate amount of content for a given lesson. Are there any, in your opinion, based on what you saw, are there any types of students that can actually succeed in these, in these types of environments? I find that kids that already have, have, have a good head start in English, uh, have, have, um, an affinity for learning English have come from some sort of background in English. Those are the kids that are always like, what, like they like being there because they understand everything that's going on. Um, uh, and I feel like they're really good at succeeding. And, um, I think kids that are visual learners that are, that are manipulative, like, that like hands-on approach to things, to actually doing things in a, in a, in a hands-on based learning environment. I think those are the kids that would definitely succeed. And I, there are, there are some schools that do that. And I know Leon's preschool does that. And I'm, Leon's preschool is not a bushy bond, but it's a preschool and it's still similar in, in nature in some ways. But uh, they have a lot of visual and hands-on learning things that they do. And I think those are the, those are the things that Bushy Bonds should start to focus on is, is more hands-on based activities and things that allow the kids to get out and apply the English that they're supposed to be learning in, in various contexts and various situations. Uh, and I think a lot of kids would get more. Uh, kids that are, that are uh, audio, visual, sort of uh, tactile learners would get more out of that. But unfortunately, very many cram schools uh, just do the bare minimum to get the kids in the seats and put a book in front of them. And a lot of kids just don't want to be there because it's, it's just more school after school, you know, and their parents are forcing them. Are there any ways for teachers to manage expectations they have for themselves, uh, the expectations they have for their students and managers when it seems there's so much pushing against them? I think it's tough because... My experience is management has never been very uh, good at giving some rope. Uh, they're not one for accepting ideas from anyone. Like they're 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 very much the ideas come from me. That's the one source that the ideas and anything that anything that pertains to conducting business as usual. It all comes from me. Everything everything that anybody does is a direct result of what I say. Any suggestions, comments, ideas, or contradictions to what I'm saying are not usually very welcome, or they have to be filtered through or diluted down, and it takes a very long time for them to make a decision based on this suggestion that's being made to them. So, yeah, there. And management does not 
budge a lot for anyone, especially not a foreign teacher. So uh, they have a way of doing things that they want to do and they're, they're going to do it no matter what. Um, so for ESL teachers coming in, I think it just, it depends. I think this is definitely a very uh, a case by case basis and a, a more applicable to the end. It's based on the, on the individual depends on the individual. What, I think the first question is what is what is that person doing there to begin with? If it's just a job, then do the job as required, and and if that's satisfactory to yourself and to the administrator, then the, or owner, there should be no problems as long as you're getting paid on time, which is another issue entirely. Um, but uh, for somebody who may want to expand upon their experience and say, hey, like I'm not just here to do a job. I'm here to learn something about myself and learn about the profession and see if maybe this is something I want to do in the future. And maybe I can incorporate some of my own ideas and my own passions and my own personality into the thing. I think as long as what they're doing is, is uh, adherent to what is expected of them from that little book, that very thin textbook that we talked about that has almost no material to work with, as long as they're still adhering to that and getting across the basic sort of bottom line that the parents are paying for that the owner wants to see, I think it should be fine. I don't think there's, as long as they're not doing anything inappropriate in the classroom, I don't think uh, the owner's ever going to come to you and go, you can't make this more fun or you can't be more like this or, or use this kind of approach or, or try to incorporate this lesson plan. Owners generally like to see foreigners take the initiative mainly because they feel like I hired you to do this regardless of what I give you to do, like regardless of what tools or what resources I give you to do your job, which is usually almost nothing. But regardless of what I give you to do, you got to go in there and do it. And if they see you taking the initiative to make it into something more, owners generally like that because then you become a marketing tool for them. Oh, look at this teacher I've got here who's doing all this new stuff that we've never seen before and whatnot. And the, and, and, and the owner likes to take credit for that, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with what they've given the teacher. So I think there is potential for somebody who's serious about enjoying themselves in the, in the, in the ESL teaching world to do what you want to do without brushing up against management or, or seeing that they're, they end up be, being displeased with your work. I think, I think that's fine. You might be the odd person out or you might be in the odd situation where the owner goes, no, you have to do everything like this. And the teacher can choose to either swallow that pill or move on to another place. So I guess my experience has been a bit different. Um, so from the schools that I've worked in, I've always been given the the freedom to to try new things in the classroom. It's just that it took some time before I could do that. There was a period where I had to build trust with the management team so they could see what I was about and you know what my teaching style was. Uh, the thing that frustrated me most, though, about these periods was that they came with every job that I took. Um, and... I guess I just would have thought that my resume and my experience would have allowed me to bypass these periods or at least shorten them considerably. I think this is a good segue into hiring practices. Now, I know you have a lot to say on this issue, um, but in your opinion, what does one have to do to be able to land a job in the ESL industry? Okay, this is where I get a little crass. My apologies to anybody listening that I may offend, but there are going to be some of you fragile people who, who are going to be very offended by this. Uh, be white. That's a very, very good start. That generally increases your chances tenfold. Uh, speak very clear, concise English. Don't have a thick, heavy uh, Scottish or British accent. And uh, have a, B, a bachelor's 
degree or an equivalent or a teaching certificate, ESL certification, but you don't have to, your bachelor's can be in anything. Like I've seen cultural anthropologists and liberal arts degrees over here teaching English. People who have no business teaching English are teaching English. This is another one that's going to sound a little crass or maybe a little off the mark, but uh, be generally attractive or normal looking. Anybody who's not very good looking is generally passed over. In Korea, I don't know what it's like here, but in Korea, they actually want your photo. They want to see what you look like. And if you're not very good looking, they don't want to hire you. When you say good looking, are you talking no tattoos and piercings or um, one needs to be, you know, one needs to have blonde hair, blue eyes to be considered for a position? I, I think I think they like they like very handsome men or very pretty women. They like uh, again white is generally the the way to go. Um, and uh, overweight in Korea is a big no no. Um, that's a big big no no. So if you're extremely overweight, they will not hire you. That kind of thing, just normal looking. Um, so I, I I don't know what passes for normal because honestly, a lot of the ESL teachers I've met have not struck me as being very normal. But then again, none of us are. So I, I, I don't know. There's there's no range for that. But I know there is a sort of a standard, a beauty standard in Korea that they try to apply to foreigners coming over. So um, yeah, there's there's uh, there's this sort of type I think. Um, I I I only mention this mainly because I've been offered teaching jobs based on how I look because I was tall and like, yeah, somebody actually approached me and going, wow, you're so tall and wow, you're handsome. And wow. you And I'm like, you know, I could be Jeffrey Dahmer for all, you know, man, like, I don't know why you're doing this. Like, I don't want, this was after the fact, after I'd gotten out of ESL teaching and I was like, no, I, I'm not interested, but they were just going to take me in and hire me based on that. And I thought that's really sad. So that's a personal experience. That's a personal bias. That's that's coming from my own perspective. It does not mean it applies to everybody. How does how do these hiring practices then affect students? Um, I I think well for one I think it it affects their their worldview, their outlook on how the world should be perceived when you get a foreign teacher coming in, and every foreign teacher is white, um, you know Joe Blow from Michigan. Like it's it really does uh, skew their whole perspective on how the world works. You know, uh, I had Korean kids laughing at me and shouting, calling me Obama. And it's like that, that is, it's stupid. Like they're just kids calling me Obama. Like it's, it's crazy how inane and immature it is, but it says something about their worldview. It says something like you can't just apply these things to to foreigners. Like foreigners have got to come in all shapes, sizes, creeds, and nationalities, religious backgrounds, sexual orientation. When I was teaching in the industry, um, I actually found that morale suffered a lot if you started hiring teachers that either didn't, like you like you said before, didn't care, had no idea what they were doing, not even a bit of experience, and then you kind of mix them with people that had been there for a few years, knew what they were doing. How does how does this affect a teacher's morale and also maybe their relationship with management? Oh, this is this is a huge one. This is a great question. Um, it's it's really really um, unfortunate because I do I have not been in a bushy bond where morale was super high. Like especially the first place that Katarina taught at, the first place I taught at, uh, Katarina taught at, and the first place I taught at was uh, where morale was just like that, like. There were people who had already been there and then there were the newbies that had come in and the people were still 
had been already been there a year were were so disillusioned and cynical and so like blase about the whole thing and almost snarky and pissy and not nice towards the new people you you got this sense like nobody wanted to be there and i and and the new people after a couple of months got 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 it almost right away after working there a couple of months it was that same thing and that is really where the problem comes in because um working we're doing a job that you're not passionate about i think first and foremost is one of the biggest mistakes you could make now, i'm not talking about ladder climbing and i'm not talking about the things that you do when you start out when you're first hitting the bricks for the first time your first couple of jobs and or maybe having to pay off a student loan that's 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 nothing but you're at a point in your life where you should be doing something that you love doing and you're not doing it and you're there and you have no idea what's going on and you have local teachers there who don't like you because you get paid more than they do and they have to work more hours than you. You are an outsourced white face and you're in just another person that's coming for a year. You're going to come and go. They see these people come and go all the time. So they generally don't like you. You are not there to do the best job that you can because nobody wants to help you do the best job that you can. And management doesn't care because they just want you to get it done. Put the hours in, get it done. Be there even if you're not, even if you're not even teaching, be there, fill that seat, make them feel like they've got the manpower, make them feel like they're important. And it, it's a cycle. It's a vicious, endless cycle. And I think foreign morale, like for, I've seen a lot of foreign teachers fall into alcohol and a lot of bad habits just because they had no other outlet. And it's, it's unfortunate because I, I see people here, some of their lives have just been ruined because they can't leave and they've got nowhere to go and they've got nothing better to do. So I think it's a cycle that people can fall into. It gets really, it can snowball. So, so that's my, and there's the lifers. There are the people who will never leave. And then there are people who are smart enough to get out after a year. Usually those are the women. <laughs> Usually the women get out after a year because they're like, okay, I've done my year. I don't want to be here anymore. I can't find a boyfriend. No more. I just want to get out of here. Like I'm out, you know? So yeah, it's, it's tough, man. It's a slippery slope. Do you have any general advice for people that genuinely enjoy teaching? I, I've met a couple, like again, I've met a couple people that after getting their taste for teaching, wanted to do it. Like went out and got cert. They actually left. They left to go to Australia or whatever and study for a year or two. They went to a university and they got full teaching certification because they genuinely like doing it. My advice for those people who are here, who like teaching, who tell themselves, oh, you know, I love it here. I love teaching. I love this stuff. Don't become complacent. Don't settle for the you know this don't don't just settle for anything because this the minute you become complacent and you start to settle and you fall into a cycle you're never going to get above you're never you're never going to get above that pay grade you're never going to be worth more than what the average bushiban teacher is worth and you're never going to be able to truly excel or or explore other avenues of a career that have so many to offer I see ESL teachers who are way too complacent, and I think that's the problem. And I, I would like those people who are passionate about what they do or who think that after getting a taste for it, it's something they really want to keep doing for the rest of their lives. Don't be complacent. Don't settle for the status quo. Don't don't rele relegate yourself to just a Bushimon teacher. You can be more. Solid advice. Solid advice.
All right. Well, I think we're going to cut our conversation there. Uh, before we go, I just want to say again, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your stories with us and also your very candid opinions uh, about the industry. Um, I think people will get a lot from what you said today. Thanks again. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Anytime, anything I can do to help and any, any other insights or any other information I can offer uh, or personal anecdotes, I'm happy to do it any other time. So. Enjoyed this episode of the Teaching While Learning podcast? Head on over to your favorite podcast service to subscribe, leave a review, or offer up some constructive feedback on what you just heard. We also have a growing community on LinkedIn, so if you'd like to connect with other like-minded ESL professionals, search for Teaching While Learning and join us. I appreciate you clicking on this episode, and I hope to have you back.